thank you, Pastor Haley. Would you just put your hands together and give the Lord praise this morning? Good to see everybody here. Just want to say thank you, my brother. What, what a man of God. You know what this is? This is a serve towel, and it's about to serve. Yes. And in case you wonder what in the world that crazy big man up there is doing sweating, this is what happens when I try to lead worship and preach too. I told the guys in the middle, we have two services, one at nine, as you know, and 1045. And, um, I said, this is why I'm so glad that I've got all of you guys that do a great job. Does, I mean, we have several that were out, but our whole praise team, how many of you thankful for them? Give them a hand this morning. Awesome. Praise God. <clears throat> I've enjoyed the last two or three years, just being able to sit back and play and not have to do because when you were doing this I'm playing two keyboards and I'm pushing from here then it's gonna I'm gonna get my sweat on so um I I apologize for the camera this morning those of you might be watching this otherwise but I'm excited today as we wrap up this series called Mythbusters because there's some things that we sometimes believe in the name of Christ and we find out that maybe it has been handed to us by tradition more so than by it being a grounded principle from the Word of God. I believe that the Bible is an amazing source. Let me qualify that even further. I believe it is the source. I believe that it is the inerrant, infallible, authoritative Word of God Himself. And when you get into it, you find out that you don't actually read it, but it reads you. And there's something there about it because it's not just black ink or red ink on white pages. Or whether you are using a tablet or a smartphone or whatever kind of device that you do to be able to get your word. It, it is the traveler's map. It's the Christian's charter, it's the pilot's compass, it's the soldier's sword. By it we are fed and guided. It's a river of pleasure, a garden of delight. It feeds us, sustains us, guards us, and guides us. It is the living word of God. It is different from other books that are famous and that may have lasted for some millennia because this book is alive. It is the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. And it's a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And we're not just talking about the pages, but we're talking about the word of God who is a person and his name is Jesus. Say that name, say it, Jesus. Something about that name. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess in heaven and earth and under the earth to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. I don't believe he's coming back to be Lord. I believe he's Lord right now. He's not going to be the King of Kings. He is ruling the universe right now from the right hand of his Father. He's sitting down because his work is finished. It is a completed work. We acknowledge that finished work, but we also acknowledge the finishing work of the Holy Spirit, the active participation of the third person of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He is working presently, actively in your life to apply that whole completely finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so when we talk this morning about some myths, we've dealt with a bunch of them. Our pastoral staff has done a great job. This has been a wonderful experience for you if you're new and you get a chance to really kind of hear some of our lead pastors in the leadership team. Pastor Haley did a great job doing it's all good. 
And you know what we learned? That that's not true unless you're in Christ who is able to work all things together for your good. It was the Sunday we sang, don't worry, be happy. Pastor Alex did a great job on a couple of them. Last Sunday, he finished up, God will not put on you more than you can handle, which is a myth. The whole whole thing is about making you come to the place where you cannot do it on your own and you cry out to God because the weight of the law brings us to 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 our knees. It breaks us and we cry out and we look up at the foot of the cross and God takes away the penalty of the law and he pours grace upon us. And then grace is not just the fact that God has dismissed my past, but it's an active agency of the power of the Holy Spirit working in my life, teaching me to do what God has called me to do, not out of action of obeying a rule, but out of being, out of being in oneness with him, out of walking in a relationship where he and I are one. We sang it this morning. Arms open wide, I stand. I am yours and you are mine. That's not a myth. Oh yes, we are children of the king. We started the first uh, message in this series called, it was Real Christians Don't Judge. I hadn't been in these boots in a while. and I'm sort of, I, Men of Israel, he is not drunk as you suppose. <laughs> Little bit, little bit of Joel's place this morning. Hallelujah! Pour out his spirit. Get some new wine. Um, you've all, you've all grown up. Some of the guests are going to go. What's he talking about? I just believe church and the presence of God ought to be filled with joy and fun. We ought to be laughing. It's not all a, a big dead dark. Some of you went to church your whole life, and it basically was that old Linda Ronstadt song. Every Sunday you heard it, you know good, you know good, you know good, baby, you know good. I'm going to sing it again. Come back next Sunday, we'll sing it again. You know good, you know good, you know good, baby, you know good. How many of you know that's true, but that's all B.C., that's before Christ. Now the one who is good is living on the inside of me, and he's changed my life, and I'm a new cre- creation in Christ. I'm nothing of myself. But it's not about me anymore. It's about him. It's all about him. Come on, somebody. And you, 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 grown up here, you grew up hearing things, and those things are powerful. And probably your granny somewhere told you, now, son, you better go take a bath and use a bar of soap and clean up that room too because cleanliness is next to what? And she had you thinking it was in the Bible somewhere. Over there in the book of Hesitations. Actually, it's in the book of Hezekiah. Would you open your Bibles to the book of Hezekiah with me, please? There is not a book called Hezekiah, okay? That's a setup. That's not a good thing to do. I'm playing, okay? I'm having a good time. It reminds me of that black gospel song. says, we're going to have a good time. Come on in this house. Look at your neighbor and say, we're going to have a good time. Come on in this house of the Lord. Why do we lose that? We get religious. David said in Psalm 122, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Something about religion gets all up in the mix and it just messes it up. And the, the mama knocks on her son's room one morning and she says, uh, uh, not, not, not the, the door, she knocks on the door of his room and she says, get up, you got to get ready for church. I don't want to. 
Son, get up out of the bed. It's, it's time. You've got to get in the shower. You've got to get ready. Get your, your, your face shaved. You've got to go to church. I don't want to. She comes back in 20 minutes and knocks on the door again. She says, son, get your backside up out of that bed and get clean and get to the church. This is Sunday. And she sa- he says, I don't want to. And she says, honey, you have to. You're the pastor. <laughs> I've been to some churches that I'm sure that he thought that. Because then nobody else want to be there. And how many of you know we can do all this and it can be great. It can be high church and pomp and circumstance. It can be low church and it can be, you know, we can break out some bluegrass. We do that here at Victory. We can, we can get our black church on and we can sing Blessed Be the Rock. Or we can do a big anthem and sing Manifesto, We Believe, like Greg did this morning. We can do it all different styles and it's not about any of that. If we do everything and have the greatest and most amazing program and the crowd show up and Jesus doesn't show up, it's every bit in vain. I want to bust this last myth this morning as we jump into the conclusion of this series. And this one is the one we've been building toward. Because it's the one that is prevailing in our society. Um, I have a graduate degree in history and I teach in a couple of different colleges. Uh, just basically freshman and sophomore level history classes so that the, the guys that are really there full-time in the program can deal with the junior and senior level and graduate stuff. And so I teach U.S. history and I teach world civilization. And um, it's really a very amazing thing. I, I love the fact, teaching at Victory University in Memphis, that I can open this, the class with prayer and I can actually preach history as his story. I can show the revelation of the providential hand of God throughout history, moving in cultures and bringing this whole thing to a, a, a lineal progression of creation, fall, redemption at the cross, and restoration to something that was better than Edenic, that was better than the garden. What God started in the garden, he finishes in a city, and his glory fills the whole earth. And my call as a pastor, my call in what I do is to take the Bible and bring it into bear in every area of life. The whole scripture, not my favorite parts, not cherry pick it and take I like this, I don't like that, but the whole of the Bible, bring it to bear in all of life. Because it's critical that if I'm going to build a worldview that's going to give me the ability to see the world in reality as God would have me to see it, I'm going to have to see it through a set of filters. I'm going to put on a set of glasses. And this set of glasses is a philosophical and a theological term called a worldview. Everybody say worldview. Whether you know it or not, somebody, some of you might say, you know what, I just don't like theology, it is dry, I don't want doctrine, and it's such an unfortunate thing that the word doctrine has taken such a beating, because the Greek word just simply means teaching, and all of you go to church at some place, or you tune in your favorite teacher on TV, or the internet, or the radio, or listen to a podcast, or a CD or whatever, and you glean something from somebody that has life in his or her message, and it builds you up, it strengthens you, it encourages you. That teacher is moving from a particular worldview. As believers and as your pastor, my challenge is to teach you out of Acts 17 to be like those faithful Thessalonians who daily search the scriptures to see if these things be so. Because just because somebody gets up behind a pulpit and it can be 
eight feet wide and carved out of wood that's a century or a thousand years old. And we can use beautiful Elizabethan English and prophesy in Shakespearean language. But the real reality is, is it rooted and grounded in the Bible, which is the word of God that is the plumb line that dictates what we know to be as truth or error. Now, let me say to you this morning, we had an amazing time at Catalyst. It is one of the best conferences that I ever attend. They've done it 12 years in a row, and I've gone. This was my eighth one this year. I I missed a few years. And it's 13,000, 14,000 local church leaders from literally about 50 states and 20 countries and probably 200 different denominations. And there's every blend and variety and Heinz 57 variety of Christianity there. And you know what? It's amazing how when everybody gets out of their own personal atmosphere and their particular genre of Christianity, we had a hands-up moment when Michael W. Smith came on the platform and he began to sing his famous song, Alleluia. Alleluia, O Lord God Almighty reigns. And it was just one of those moments where the presence of God just whoosh. It swept down in the room, and I looked around the crowd, and there's 13,000 people, and hands are raised all over the place. And there were other moments in the worship where we didn't have that, and maybe they were singing something new that we didn't know. But in that moment, it was just, I mean, it was a God moment. It was a wow moment. How many have ever had one of those? Hopefully, at some point in our service, you have that regularly because that's our focus is to let you touch the presence of God so that even a person who right now might not be a professing Christian and you're just examining and testing this thing and seeing if it's legit, let me tell you, you are welcome in this place. It is a safe place. You can actually say, I'm not sure. And you know what? We will throw our arms around you and go, hey, that's fine. Hang out with us a little bit. Let us tell you what God's done in our lives because it's amazing. And so you're, you're, you're welcome here. You can, be, you can be on a journey and looking and seeking and you just know that God's moving in your life because of circumstances that have happened, but maybe you've not yet crossed that line of faith. You are welcome in this place, but I believe that, that the presence of God should be so real and so powerful that even an unbeliever can walk out of this place and go, wow, God showed up at that place. God was in that place. That's what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 14. That's why we do everything that we do. And in the middle of all of this, postmodern society, relativism is reigning. It has literally been for about the last 125 years, especially in Western civilization. And relativism is basically the idea that everything that makes a claim on truth is all equal together. Now, I had first service to work the kinks out because we had a great time at Catalyst. I did not get two pennies worth of sleep because we're up way before daylight and we're out there probably until, you know, nine, ten. It takes an hour to get out of the parking lot and just get back to where we were in Atlanta. Presence of God is so powerful and it's just no time whatsoever. You just drink. It's like trying to drink from a fire hydrant. <laughs> and you're hearing some of the greatest ministries in the world bringing a now word that relates to where we are in making disciples and advancing the kingdom of God. And so I I had in my head what I was going to be sharing this week to wrap this thing up and wrapped up my my bully notes, what we call them, the bulletin notes, to send to Heather, my administrative assistant. Late Wednesday night, it was about midnight, and I hadn't looked at it again until just 
got back. And I mean, just worn slap out, but at the same time, refreshed in my spirit. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You, you can be tired in your body, but yet you've just got a whole new fresh perspective, just ready to take on hell with a water pistol. How many of you know what I'm talking about? That's, that's why I need these once in a while, these mountaintop experiences, and that you, we can't live up there. Jesus took the three up to the mountaintop, transfigured in front of them, showed them his presence in a whole new kind of way, but he said, hey, guys, this whole experience was to make you so that you'd be ready to go back down into that demon-possessed valley and deal with that demoniac down there. And sometimes you come off your greatest highs and you end up challenged in some of your deepest lows and you lose your focus and you go, wait a minute, the high was to remind me that God's got this thing. And I'm not walking into this valley by myself, but I have a majority. Now, some of you were here in the first service, the leaders, you're going, what's he doing? Is he ever going to get through this? Because I, I had to sort of wade through, and I know what I'm, what, what I'm going to do in this. You can thank the first service, folks, because I kind of worked the kinks out. All right, you've had a few minutes to sit, and I want you to stand with me and I'll read the verse of Scripture. We're going to jump right in. Here we go. Come on. Um, the title of the message is, It Doesn't Matter What We Believe As Long As You're Sincere. Say that with me. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Everybody say, myth busted. Okay, here we go. Read the scripture, John chapter 8, verses 31, 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. King James says, make you free. We're going to unpack that in a moment. Pray with me. Spirit of God, thank you that you are in this place. Thank you, Lord, that you are everywhere in all of creation. Thank you, Lord, that you indwell and abide in the heart of every believer in this room. But, Lord, thank you that we've experienced your tangible presence, the anointing of the Holy Spirit in this room today, and we are thankful. We don't ever want to take it for granted. I ask you, Holy Spirit, today that you would do what only you can do. You're the teacher, the guide, the comforter, the counselor, the paraclete, the advocate, Thank you that today you were interceding. You're praying for us according to the will of God. I just acknowledge before you, oh, Heavenly Father, that I cannot do anything apart from you, Jesus. And I ask you to get in the middle of this. Give me thoughts that are clear. Give me words that are precise to teach and to touch the hearts and the minds of your people. In Jesus' name I pray and all of God's people said, amen. You may be seated this morning. Myth number eight, it does not matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. Point number one, all truth claims are not equal. All truth claims are not equal. It sounds like the very familiar statement that Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers, responsible for pinning the words to the Declaration of Independence, said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It was actually a John Locke quote, English philosopher who had made this phrase famous throughout England and the colonies, life, liberty, and property. And Jefferson lifted it to some degree 
edited and plagiarized and changed and then called it life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I believe that as a Christian that that has to be defined in understanding that my happiness can only come in God. Pastor Jeremy, our youth pastor, did a great job that week dealing with the myth that says if it makes you happy, because that's another common myth in American society. If it makes you happy, do it. Only to find out that so many things that do not ultimately have an eternal perspective are vanity, they're folly. And so all of these things that we've dealt with have been things that you may or may not believe, but you've heard. You've heard in our society people tell you real Christians don't judge. And if you believe that myth, then you end up suspending all discernment in the name of trying to be tolerant in a pluralistic society. Now, I believe Christians should not be condemning. We should not be judgmental. We ought not be legalistic. We ought to put down our bag of rocks. We shouldn't be legalists with the law of God. But it does not mean that the biblical understanding of judgment, and I'm just going back to just give you this one example. We've had seven of them that have been great. This is the one I started with. And it's the idea that Jesus said, stop judging after outward appearances and make righteous judgment. It's not so much the Bible tells you not to judge, but it teaches you how if you will stay in it long enough. The scripture said, if you abide in my word, you will be my disciples, methetes, students, learners, following the way of the master. If you abide in my word, you will be my disciples and you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. King James says, make you free. I really like that in the old English this time because I think it says something that set you free doesn't say. I can be a man bound in a prison. I can be a prisoner of war, a captive, possibly of a religious persecution scenario behind a bamboo curtain or an iron curtain of communism somewhere. I can be bound externally, but I can be a fully free man on the inside, living in my freedom in Christ, while at the same time I may be bound in the sense of not being able to travel and extend my freedom in that regard. Flip the coin. You can live in a free country, walking around, coming in this room this morning, making choices to to enter into whatever degree of worship to which you would like to, but you know what? You can be free to do those, get in your car, drive whatever speed you want to, break the law, keep the law, whatever you choose to do, you make those choices. But you know what? If you do not know Christ, you are a bound man on the inside while you're walking around free. So I see that there's a significance here. If you know the truth, the truth will make you free. I I don't just want to be set free externally, but I want to be made free on the inside. Can somebody help me a little bit? All truth claims are not equal. And when we ask the question, what is truth? It's the same question that Pilate asked Jesus in John chapter 18. And the question really is not answered. I mean, Jesus answers it in the Bible himself. And not to fast forward to the end of my message, but you know it. So many Bible people in this room, you know what Jesus said in John 14, 6. Jesus said to them, I am the what? The way, the what? The truth and the life. No man comes into the Father except by me. Now, we want to understand this morning that all truth claims are not equal. So I googled the phrase, what is truth? And it says, the quality or state of being true. Man, I just, isn't that a powerful? That just really didn't do it for me. Did it do it for you? (laughs) You know, you can't define a word by using a form of the word itself. I'm going, who 
Who wrote this stupid website? Why, how, why did that come up like that? Okay, so I read again, second, second installment. That which is true or in accordance with fact or reality. Okay, so we've defined it a little bit more clearly. We're talking about reality. We're talking about facts. And the fact is that over about the last 600 years, there's been a breakdown in terms of the answer that we give when we ask the question, what is truth? The Renaissance, French word means rebirth, and it was a period in Western civilization where there was a revival of philosophy of Greek and Roman teaching. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, they start teaching what these guys had to say again in the 1400s, particularly in Italy. And there's a revival in music. There's Greek architecture being built. We have a lot of famous paintings that we've all come to love and respect. If you've been to the Louvre in Paris or you've seen them in some of the beautiful cities of Italy, uh, you can jump on the internet and you can see some of these very famous painters. And by the way, if you don't know who I'm talking about, all the kids in the room this morning, parents, it's that that stupid cartoon that used to drive you crazy on Sunday morning is called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. What were the names of those mutant turtles? Leonardo, Michelangelo, Donatello, and Raphael. Raphael's the one I'd like to shoot. Raphael painted all those little bitty chubby babies with little tiny wings on. And it's given people the idea that angels are little, fat, overweight babies. <laughs> or some of, these, some of these Renaissance painters paint Jesus always with that lamb around his neck. And he's making a, a weak peace sign. And he's pale and just washed out and he's got a light bulb behind his head and it just I just don't really and I, you know I, I gotta back up yes I appreciate great art but I don't like the image sometimes it's portrayed and you go away seeing that and you think that's how Jesus is he's always walking around with a smelly sheep on his neck Ugh. You know, you're, just, you're getting these ideas in your head, and so we, we concoct all of these traditions that get passed down, and these, these myths that we start to believe. And, you know, Michelangelo painted the famous Sistine Chapel in, in the St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican. It's that famous depiction of the finger of Adam reaching the hand of God speaking, the voice of God speaking, the hand of God reaching to Adam. Very famous Michelangelo. Well, during this same period, we have the very beginning of humanism. Because Leonardo gives us a very famous painting. I'm going to put the mic down. And if you, if you know what I'm trying to do here, I want you to tell me what it is. Touchdown. Somebody said the naked dude. And she's right. It's called the Vitruvian Man. Say it fast, fast, real fast, five times. I'm just kidding. Vitruvian man. And the whole, the whole punch of the Renaissance was about a reaction to scholasticism in the Catholic Church. And it was about making man the standard for all of life. Are you following me? Okay. Now, some messages I preach and I sweat this much more. And it's about touching your emotions. Today, it's about teaching your mind. Because in a couple of days, when the touch is faded, it's going to be what you've learned that carries you. 
Humanism is not so evil as long as you have the word Christian in front of it. But you haven't heard Christian humanism in your lifetime. All you hear is secular humanism. That's because that's what we have in America. Our public school system has given way to removing every possible potential speaking of the name of God in, the, in an attempt to be pluralistic and be tolerant. And those are good things to be tolerant of others, which, by the way, was first a Christian virtue. To really be tolerant and to give people an opportunity to be able to express themselves. America is a free country. By the way, let me just test your history knowledge. Is there anybody in the room smarter than a fifth grader? Constitution is written. We have two states that refuse to ratify it, and they don't ratify it for a couple of years. And it's North Carolina and Rhode Island who hold out, and it's because we've not yet added the 10 very critical amendments that are the first ones. Can anybody tell me what those 10 first amendments are called? The Bill of Rights, okay? Can anybody tell me what the very first freedom that is listed in the Bill of Rights, what is it? No, it's not speech. Religion. It is not the press. It is not freedom to assemble. The very first freedom that's granted to you as an American is the freedom of religion, and it's not freedom from religion the way the secular humanists are trying to paint it in this day and time. Congress shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise of religion. It can't prohibit it. It has to let it be free. Are you following me so far? Okay, now I know that this is a little bit historical. It's a little bit philosophical this morning. But if you'll stay with me, you'll really get some good stuff out of this. Say it with me. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. What is truth? We have to ask some questions. We've had a breakdown. We've made man the standard by which we determine truth. In order for truth to be defined properly, it would have to be a factually and a logically correct Statement. Pastor Alex, would you come to the platform? I want you to help me this morning. In other words, it would have to be true. But perhaps we could look further at truth by determining what it is not. Okay? This is a philosophical principle that I'm going to illustrate with you this morning. That if you go to a very basic introductory to philosophy class, you will learn this. Everybody say that with, it's in your notes, but say it with me. A is not non-A. All right, Question. I'm going to make a statement. You tell me whether it's true or false. There is a bag on the table. That's true. Why do you know it's true? What if you couldn't see? You could hear it. There's some kind of sensory understanding. You can feel it, okay? Now, if I take the bag off the table and put it down here and I still make the statement, there is a bag on the table. Is that true? Okay. A is not non-A. Now let that sink in. This is a subset of philosophy called logic. A is not non-A. You are told in our society that all truth is relative. That it does not matter that Dawn's truth is her truth. Alexandra's truth is her truth. Greg's truth is his truth. And who are you? Who in the, and they usually put a four-letter word right there, do you think you are? To make a demand that I believe what you say truth is because this is truth for my life. And the relativists live by that, making decisions based on what we call situational ethics. Okay? 
And again, we've been told it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you're sincere, okay? So we know that it was not true when the bag was not there. It is true again. There is a bag on the table. Now, we're going to play the little Sesame Street game. One of these things is not like the other. Are you following me? Which one of these is not like the other? Well, I think it's maybe a nectarine or something like that, okay? Let's take one away. And let me tell you that both of those are the same. Would you believe me? Well, you know, after all, I know you're a Christian, but I'm a Buddhist, and, you know, all truth is the same. And my my truth claim is just as good as yours is. And all of these are all relevant, but more than that, they are relative to who I am. And that's my culture, and that's what I've been taught my whole life, and that's the way I'm choosing to live. Who do you think you are as a Christian to tell me that yours is better than mine? We want to answer that, okay? Before we do, Pastor Alex, tell me, I, just take the microphone, and I want you to describe what you see here. I'm wanting to eat this one, but I don't think this one is edible. But it looks so good. It does look good. Okay. Why, why wouldn't you eat that one? Because there's no nutrition in it, uh, and this one is very nutritious. Okay. Basically, you're just having to go on his word at this point. Why could you go a little deeper? Tell me why you wouldn't eat that one. Looks great, man. It's made out of plastic. Okay. So we could say that both of these pieces are of fruit, are fruit, and be somewhat true. This is fake. This one's real. Okay. Um, what I what I want to see this morning is that you understand this principle that we can't say this is true and this is true and both of them be equal in terms of a truth claim. Okay, so you, if I put these two out here, could we say that those are equal? Yes, they're the same thing. One is a facsimile of the other. Now we're comparing, sort of, so to speak, fake pears with fake pears, to use the old apples and oranges analogy. But what I want you to see this morning is that for people to say that all truth claims are equal is the same thing as this. A is not non-A. Truth will not contradict itself. Truth that is truth will be truth at all times. Give Pastor Alex a hand as he's seated this morning. <laughs> Enjoy my brother. That went to Atlanta and back, and it got kicked around the floor. So if you can get any nutrition out of it, you go right ahead. <laughs> I bet he doesn't eat it now. Um. Relativism kicks into the whole play, and it does something to us. There are truths that are relevant. For example, there are people in this room who part your hair on the left side of your head. That's true of you. Are there of you who part your hair on the right side of your head? That's true of you. Or you like Pastor Alex, and it's true that you have an amazing faux hawk. Glory to God. <laughs> Phenomenal. We're not talking about those kind of things that are particular, peculiar to you. It is true that the British drive on the left side of the road. It's true that Americans drive on the right side of the road. Those are culturally relative. But the things that we can prove is that there are things that logic, somebody says to you, oh, well, there is no such thing as an absolute. And all you have to do in your junior high classroom is look right back at them and say, you know what? You've just made an absolute statement by saying there is no absolute truth. So just by virtue of the very statement you are making, you have undone the very theory of relativism at its very core. There is a standard, and it's not man, it's God. 
We have to look outside of ourselves. It is important what we believe because ideas have consequences. Now, I just want to give you one universally recognized statement that is an absolute. You cannot argue it down. I don't care how many PhDs you have. I want you to repeat it after me. Something cannot bring itself into existence. Say it again all together. Something cannot bring itself into existence. One more time. Here we go. Something cannot bring itself into existence. That is an absolute fact that is undeniable. If it doesn't exist, there is no creative power or ability to bring it into existence because it doesn't exist. If it exists, it's already there. Are you following me? That is an absolute truth. For us to understand what truth is, we have to look outside of ourselves. Truth can be proven in logic. This is the problem of philosophy. There are truths that are not proven by theories or a theorem or a paradigm. I love my wife. I can't prove that to you, but she knows it. That's not proven by logic. Or what you think is beautiful. What is beautiful to one person is not the same kind of beauty that's to another. And if you don't think that I'm telling you the truth, you should have been in the van with us when we were on the way to Atlanta and all the single ladies in the van were talking about what they thought was a good-looking man. Well, I like Brad Pitt. Well, no, 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 he's too pretty. Gerard Butler. And the, the different single ladies are talking about what their perception of handsome, rugged handsomeness is. And I got tickled and I was asking questions because they all had a different idea. And so those are preferences. So when we start to talk about truth, we're moving beyond whether I part my hair on the left or the right or what I call be a beautiful lady or a female calls a handsome man. We're, we're moving beyond that. We're looking outside of ourselves to God. And it's critical that we understand this whole principle that God gives us an absolute. Move with me, please, to number two. If we ever hope to determine if there is such a thing as truth apart from cultural and personal preferences, we must acknowledge that we are then aiming to discover something greater than ourselves something that transcends culture and individual inclinations. To do this is to look beyond ourselves and outside of ourselves. In essence, it means we are looking for God. So it does matter what I believe because ideas have consequences. Truth, by definition, divides. It is not inclusive. It is exclusive. Number two, my point this morning, we'll move quickly now. We can be sincerely wrong. I have been wrong. As Christians, we do not need to be afraid of truth that is going to possibly be discovered and may change what we have believed in the past. Sometimes Christians in history have defended long after a discovery has been made and continued to hold an old line of tradition in defiance of clearly demonstrated, validated, authenticated truth. For centuries, the church taught that the earth was the center of the universe and the sun and the moon and all the planets revolved around the earth and it was called the Ptolemaic model of the universe. And Copernicus comes along and he starts postulating and theorizing that actually the earth is not the center of this thing, but the sun is the center of the thing, and the earth and all the other planets are revolving around the sun. 
The church had believed for about 15 centuries that the universe was geocentric. The earth was the middle of this and everything is revolving around it. Copernicus comes along and turns that whole thing upside down and he says, you know what, we've believed something for 15 centuries now and it is not correct, but what is the center of this solar system is the sun and he started preaching, or teaching, I'm sorry, a heliocentric solar system where all of the planets were revolving around the sun and you know what, a guy by the name of Galileo Galilei is tinkering around with some glass and he ends up coming up with a pretty amazing telescope and he looks into it And he says, wow, Copernicus was right. The earth is not the center of this thing. And you know what the church does? They didn't kill him. They they threw him in prison. They might as well have killed him. But they excommunicated him and called him a heretic. Did you know it was not until late... 1970s, 1980s, when John Paul II actually revisited that and reinstated Galileo as a member in good standing of the Roman Catholic Church. Because it took a few years, took a oh, maybe just a couple extra years, maybe 500 years or so, for the church to go, hey, wait a minute, this guy's right. Now, do you know there's nothing in the Bible that gave the Catholic Church to that point? any foundation to believe or teach that the earth was the center of this thing. But they'd been told it so long, it was a tradition that drove the teaching of the church. And when this guy came along and challenged it, very much the same way that Martin Luther did, preaching the just shall live by faith. And so Copernicus postulates it, Galileo proves it, and Galileo gets excommunicated. And what I want to tell you that I see in this historically is in the same way that God brought a Copernican revolution in this whole scientific revolutionary period of this age of discovery, and he moved the whole understanding of how we see the world, our worldview, the filter through which we are able to understand reality around us is that he starts saying, look, you are not the center of this thing. The sun is. Now hear me prophetically. The S-U-N is a picture of the S-O-N. You and I, as much as America has been saturated with a man-centered gospel that says God and all of the creation and every angel are all revolving around me and if I will just make the right confession, that all of creation has to bow to me because I'm the center of this thing. How completely, disgustingly self-absorbed is it when we have not only a messed up view of the universe, seeing the earth as the center of everything, but we live our lives as if everything around us is all revolving around us. And you know what? The very first thing that Jesus does when he comes into your heart is he gives you a Copernican revolution. He wakes you up and he says, you know what? You are important, but you ain't near as important as you think you are because this thing is about a sun-centered system. Out of him and through him and to him are all things and it's for his pleasure that you even have breath in your lungs this morning because God says it's for his glory and it's not about you. It's not about me. It's not a me-centered, man-centered humanistic view of the kingdom of God. And that's one more place where his story is marching down through history. Sometimes the church, God help us, are the last ones to wake up to truth that's been revealed. Look at your neighbor and say, I don't want to be that way. 
I want to know truth and I want the truth to make me free. Say it. Come on, tell them. I say, I want to know truth. I want the truth to make me free. The best thing God can do is upset your traditional paradigm about the way you viewed things. And it gives you a whole different picture. You know, okay, great. Just give these people the opportunity. They're passionate about it. Just, you know, rent out a venue, hire some cheerleaders, bring in a great band, and let's have a huge convention for the Flat Earth Society. I believe in a flat earth. Did you know there are a thousand people on the internet in a group called the Flat Earth Society? They're passionate, they're sincere. Here's Johnny. He's sincere, but he's sincerely wrong. Wrong answer. Ideas have consequences. Tell your neighbor on the other side, say, ideas have consequences. It matters what you believe. Let's just keep examining this for a moment. It doesn't matter what you believe so long as you're sincere. Well, guess what? If you're not really taking what you believe seriously, then you're not really sincere about it, are you? Oh, wow. There's a guy in a high-rise office building. I didn't tell this in the last... And uh, he so is convinced that the building is built out of unbreakable glass that he's going to prove to his fellow employees, his colleagues, on the 36th floor, prove to them that it's unbreakable glass, that he walks across the room, and he gets up a full head of steam, and he walks over there and throws himself against that glass, and he actually lives to tell about it. He sincerely believed that the glass wouldn't break, But truth was different. He was caught on a landing two floors down that saved his life. And he won a Darwin Award that year. Some of you know what that is. Look at your neighbor and say, that's for being stupid. What was it? John Wayne said, life is hard, but it's even harder when you're stupid. (laughs) one of my favorite verses this is the one I have in the counseling chamber people come in to talk to me pastor what does the word say well let me show what the word says Proverbs chapter 12 verse 1 he who hates correction is stupid say stupid how many times have we been stupid are you getting anything out of this this morning Mark chapter 7 verse 13 says your traditions make the word of God of no effect We can literally nullify God's word by believing something that we've always believed because we thought it was true. A grandmother passed down a recipe for her famous roast to her daughter, and her daughter passes it down to the granddaughter, and the granddaughter learns one day that she's supposed to buy roast, and she's supposed to put in peeled potatoes and carrots, and she's supposed to put cut about two inches off one end of it and put it in the roasting pan, fill it up and just cover it with water and salt and pepper it and put it in the oven for 350 and cook it for two hours or whatever. So her grandmother and her mother are visiting her one day and she decides she's going to cook grandma's favorite roast, a couple of secret ingredients that we didn't reveal in the story. And so she includes those and her grandmother's standing there watching her do that. 
And her mother's watching her do it, and she sees her do it, and she says, the grandmother stops her. She says, why are you cutting the two inches off of that roast right there? She said, because that's what mama told me I had to do. And grandmama said, well, that's because my pan was too small, and I had to cut the roast to fit the pan. (laughs) But a tradition had been passed down, and she thought that affected how the roast tasted. The recipe had nothing to do with cutting the end of the roast off, but grandma, grandma said, are you kidding me? I just had a little pan. And sometimes we pick up the practices of a former generation that work then but need to change now because it's a different day and we defend it and we have church fights and we have church splits because you hadn't been to church if you don't do it the way granny did it. And Granny would go, you know what? That's just the day we lived in. And it was all about the presence of God. And, you know, people fight church wars over music styles. And let me tell you something. God can show up with the Gaither vocal band singing on that great getting up morning, fare thee well, fare thee well. Or he can show up to some of Greg's reggae going south to the Caribbean, get you a little jerk chicken and... A margarita? Maybe I better quit. I'm, a, I'm still in the South, aren't I? Okay. I didn't want to offend the Baptist. Well, you can do, it. You can do black church. Man, we can, we can get, out, get on our shout. We can do a hill song. We can do a, we can do a hymn. You know, none of that is going to bring the presence of God. It's going to be the state of the heart of the worshiper. Put your hands together. Come on, give him praise. Romans 125, help me, Spirit of God, to finish this. Some of you said amen. Romans 125, the Bible says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. 2 Thessalonians 2.10 and 11 say, because they refuse to love the truth and be saved, God sends them a strong delusion that they may believe a lie and be damned. They They may believe what is false because they didn't love the truth. Hitler gives us the negative connotation of the word propaganda in World War II. Translated from his personal work called Mein Kampf, My Struggle, it says this, that the big lie literally is the the use of a lie so colossal that no one would believe that someone could have the impudence to distort the truth so infamously. Hitler asserted the technique was used by Jews to unfairly blame Germany's loss in World War I on Germany officer Erich Ludendorff. So Hitler blames and tells the big lie again, and the propaganda is spread, and a whole nation believes that they're doing the will of God by sending six million Jews to the gas chamber. Don't tell me it's okay what you believe so long as you're sincere. There are people that are sitting in the room this morning and my heart breaks for you because you were told 20 years ago at a time in your life, there's a sister in the room and you love Jesus and God's coming to your heart and he's forgiven you and he's changed you and he's wiped the past clean, but you still have the lingering guilt of making a decision years ago because somebody told you it was okay to abort your baby because it was not a convenient time in your life. And the people that counseled you and said, this is your choice, it's your right, didn't show up to help you on the night you've cried yourself to sleep because of a decision you made that you believed and you were sincere about. 
I want to tell you that Jesus Christ has the ability to come into your heart and lift the burden of that guilt and make all things new. But we are gripped in chains that hold us when we believe things and think those ideas don't have consequences. No matter how passionate we are about them. God will let us believe a lie if we believe it long enough. If we tell the big lie long enough and we start to justify, we can manage to push ourselves into believing lots of things. The big lie of Satan as I bring this message to a close this morning. I know I'm a little bit over, but I sense that the Spirit of the Holy Ghost is in this room today, and he's wanting to touch some people on a very, very deep level We've been theological and we've been philosophical, but now I want to tell you God is wanting to get personal and individual with your specific circumstance today. And some of you are sitting in this room and you've heard the big lie of the enemy and it's screaming at you from not just an angel and a demon on either shoulder, but it's the voice behind you that's screaming at you and telling you you've blown it too many times. You've taken advantage of the grace of God once too many You are too deep into the pit. You are too entangled in an addiction that you cannot escape from. And it's the big lie of the enemy that he keeps telling you and he keeps telling you and the propaganda is spread. And it weaves its way like tentacles around you onto the very corners of your soul. And I want to tell you, Jesus Christ can break the power of that big lie. Too many times people come to Christ and they have been made new in Christ and they stay in a place that is always preaching an old covenant mentality. It's a legalism, a law-based situation. It's about, yeah, you know what? God loved you and he gave you another chance and he gave you by grace, but now because you're not living right and you're not keeping the law in the right way, then you're really not his. And you've blown it too many times. And some of you have heard it in different kinds of ways because religion tells the big lie that our access to God is an outside-in proposition. I have to alter my behavior and clean myself up and get my ducks in a row and all of them quacking at the same time before I ever show up. And I have to make sure that I make myself presentable to God and get it all straight. And I want to tell you there is truth to the song that Billy Graham made famous at every one of his altar calls when he said, just as I am without one plea, but by thy blood was shed for me. And I want to tell you God loves you right where you are this morning, but he loves you so much that he will not leave you where you are. And that is the truth that will dispel the lie. Religion, an outside-in proposition, will tell you that you have to work your way for God to love you. You have to earn your salvation. You have to hope that when you stand before St. Peter, and where they even get that is not biblical, like he's going to call the shots and say, let him in. Yeah, 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 I know him. He's, he, he's my uncle boy. Let him in. Uh, no, 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 he ain't. No, no, for sure not that one. Peter, <laughs> first of all, do you know that when it comes to judgment, if you were a believer You won't stand at the judgment seat to be judged. That already was poured out on Jesus 2,000 years ago. You've already been judged, and it's been stamped on your forehead and your hand and your life. you got the mark of God on you, and God looks at you and says you're righteous. We believe so many falsehoods, so many lies. Number three, and I'm finished. Have you got anything out of this this morning? Number three, belief without corresponding behavior is dead. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, 
and the life. No man comes into the Father but by me. Now, if all truth claims are equal, you know what? You can read the Quran, and with all due respect, you will find some truth. You can study Confucianism. It's a great proverb-based wisdom system of ethics, and you will find some truth. You can read about Siddhartha, Gautama, the first Buddha. You can understand some of the things they're saying and even see some parallels between Christianity and Buddhism. You will see some truth. Because all truth is God's truth, people. Are you with me? Okay. But not all of these truth claims are equal. God didn't say, you know what? Just choose whatever way you want. All roads lead to heaven. He didn't say, you take the high road and I'll take the low road. And I'll get to heaven for you. No, he said, there is one way. There is the new and living way by his blood that has opened the door into his presence. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Now, if the other truths are equal, then Jesus is a liar. Don't anybody come to you preaching some kind of nonsensical universalism that everybody's going to be saved Total reconciliation comes some kind of nonsense. It is a perennial weed that springs up in the body of Christ in every generation, and it has to be, have to get some roundup of the Holy Ghost and spray that mess back down. Rob Bell wrote a book here just a couple years ago, Love Wins. And man, it sounds good. But when you when you take one portion of the gospel and you extrude it and you ignore the other portions of the gospel, you create a caricature. We see political cartoons all the time. You see a caricature of Jay Leno, and it's his big jawline. If you see a political cartoon of President Barack Obama, what does it look like? Ears and a great big, huge, toothy smile. He has a fantastic set of teeth. Big smile. You see Bill Clinton, it's all about that big chin and the big honker he's got out there, big nose. And so a caricature is emphasizing one or two parts taking it to the degree that it becomes almost grotesque, but it's an exaggerated expression. And it in no way really accurately or truly represents that individual. And sometimes the church does the same thing with the gospel. We pull one thing out and we create the prosperity gospel. When we've done that, we've just caricatured the real gospel. Now, does God want to bless you? Absolutely. But I'm not going to pull out these verses that I can proof text one idea and ignore all the others that basically will give me a different viewpoint. Because God says, I want to teach you that I'll be with you whether you're in abundance or whether you're in abasement. Whether you have everything or you have nothing. If you have me, you have everything, Jesus says. Are you following me? Too many times we caricature the gospel. We extrude one part of it out and make the ears really big or the smile huge and the eyes are bigger than the whole head itself almost. And I just want to tell you, what I want to make big, what I want to give to you is a picture of this Savior who loves you so much. And you you have to make a choice. You have to make a decision. You cross the line of faith by saying, C.S. Lewis said, either Jesus is a liar or he is a lunatic or he is Lord. Either he's a liar and he was trying to deceive us because he said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man, you can't get to the Father except you come by me. If that 
if that compared to every other system of belief, they're all equal, then Jesus is a liar. Or he's a lunatic and he really believed it, but it's not true. Or he really is what he claimed to be and he is the Lord of life. This morning, your life hangs in the balance with how you ask the question and how you answer it. Jesus looked at his disciples one day and says, whom do men say that I am? And they answered a number of prophets. And he looked at them and he said, but who do you say that I am? And this morning, that's the question God's asking you as I close this service. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I'm not going to embarrass anyone this morning, and I know I've been a little bit over, but I think it's important to wrap up this series. I want to tell you right now, I want to talk to you. It's just everybody else, just, just close your eyes and just think of the two of us sitting down together. And I ask you the question right now. You know what? You may have been raised in a Christian home. You may have had a lot of good, godly traditions that have been handed to you. We're not even going to worry about any of those right now. Only one question comes forefront to the center. Who is Jesus in your life? You know, he's, he's more than just a historical figure. I, I believe in George Washington. He was the first president of our nation. Great leader. Man of stature and com- and conviction. But I'm not trusting George to do anything for me. So believing in Jesus is not like believing in George, that they're both historical figures. Believing into Jesus, like the person asked me one time, there's a difference in believing in Jesus and believing Jesus. What has he said to you about you? Every one of us come to him unworthy in every way. But he's paid the price. He's paid the penalty. The Greek word that Jesus said on the cross, we, we get it in our Bible, is to tetelestai. It is finished. It's paid in full. He finished the work. This morning, what you have to do is just simply agree with him and say, I am a sinner. I need a Savior. Now, the Spirit of God has already been moving. He's, he's touching hearts. There's not a formula Something cannot bring itself into existence. You are dead in sin. If you don't know God, you don't have the ability to even seek him. God's moving in some hearts right now and blowing the wind of his Holy Spirit to create life, to give you an opportunity even to choose him right now. I just want to ask you this simple thing. Are you ready to make that choice, ready to cross this line of faith? The Bible says simply, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You don't have to understand it theologically. All you know is you can't do it by yourself. It's going to take Jesus to do it for you. And you just say, Jesus, forgive me. Come into my heart. Change my life. I give it to you. My whole life, I lay it down. That's the words we sang this morning. I stand, arms open wide. I'm surrendering to you. Be my Savior and be my Lord. All heads bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around. I'm not going to embarrass you or bring you to the front, but I just want to ask you, anybody who wants to be included in the prayer, I'm about to pray, would you just slip your hand up right where you are? Yes. There are several in the room, several hands. I saw, thank you. I want to talk for a moment just to the believers. You, you know Jesus, you've been walking with him. The Spirit of God lives and dwells in you. But you know what? Something really kind of stirred in you this morning to say, you know what? I need to be a student of the word. I need to grab hold of it so I can learn how to tell people what he's done in my life because he's called me to do that. Just, just some words you said, Pastor, really lodged in my spirit and ignited uh, an ability to be able to just share what God's done in my life with confidence, and I want to do that. How many of you in the room would say that this morning? Just lift your hand. 
All right, I want to pray for both of these groups. Father, thank you for those initially that raised their hands and said, I want to cross the line of faith in Jesus to be my Savior. Spirit of God, you're doing the work that no man can do. Right now, I put my trust in you. Lord, these that are taking that step, they're sensing you drawing them. And Lord, they just right now make it in their own words and say, Jesus, save me. Make that your prayer right now. Say, Jesus, forgive me. Come into my heart. Change me. Make me new. God, I thank you that you're Lord over the lives of these people that have taken that first step on a journey to walk with you. Do what only you can do. Lord, for the believers who've been walking with you, who raised their hands and said, I've just sensed a call of God just to become a student of the word and get into it and let the scripture become part of the fiber of my life and to begin to share my testimony. They lifted their hands and God, I thank you for a renewal, the Holy Spirit to strengthen them and drive them, O Lord, into your word and help them to study to show themselves approved so that they can share a reason with people why they have a hope in you. I thank you for that the blessing of the Lord come upon them. We give you praise in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said,